What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I'm delighted this morning to be joined by... Alfredo Gonzalez Valenzuela, a scientist and also a podcaster who is interested in climate change. Welcome to our show, Alfredo. Thank you so much, Sylvia. I am a big fan of yours and I'm just excited to be here. We are delighted to have you on our show. Now, you know, every dream begins with a seed and often I'm more inspired by the stories that you know, lead us to take the leap to take a, you know, a dream off the road and to plant it. So you started this podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you, how you got started? Two, two things that really happened with me uh, in order to get the podcast started, the Climate Frontline podcast. One is that I was working in local government in Portland, Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., and Having spent time working in local government doing sustainability and waste management work, I quickly came to realize that it was academia and news that was kind of leading the forefront in creating a narrative of what was happening with climate frontline communities, meaning those people who are experiencing the worst effects of climate change. So I saw that firsthand and I realized that the stories that were being portrayed the language that was being used and the whole narrative was being created by not those individuals who are at the front line of climate change. So that was one thing that happened in my life. And that, that quickly followed by me realizing that I had to st step away from the United States and kind of find my soul again and my spirit. And so I decided to start traveling through Latin America. And in that process, I visited Bolivia, and there is a big place called Salar de Uyuni, where you have the largest concentration of lithium brine in the world. And this is an important uh, moment for me because I realized that by meeting these miners, by meeting those people there, that all this lithium was going to be at some point used to make batteries, to make the phone battery that I'm using right now to speak to, to you, the laptop batteries, the e-vehicle batteries. So it brought this sense of questions around like, okay, what about this just transition into e-vehicles and who is this transition going to serve and at what cost more specifically? By the time I came back to the U.S., the coup against Evo Morales had happened and many other events had taken place. And as you may know, regardless of whether you're in Canada or the U.S., 
there's this media, right? There's media on the left and there's media on the right. And both of them did not cover Evo Morales' coup as I knew had happened over there, as I know the relationships that I had over there had taken place. So that's the moment that I really said, okay, estas historias, the stories that I heard of people, of people who are close to me in my circles, those are not the stories that you're going to hear in the media. Those are not the stories uh, and, and seeing both the positive and negative side of those stories that, that are going to be building that narrative. And that's really when I decided, hey, let's take this a different way. Let's talk about this in a way that's going to make people somewhat uncomfortable about the reality that's out there, but also like bring the history of how people are navigating being at the front line of climate change and still doing it in a way that's like meaningful to them, to their families, to their abuelito, to their abuelita. And like, they're still uh, flourishing in that way. Right. And so I think that's a different narrative that needs to be built different than like carbon emissions and like, you know, um, the metrics and the reports, which is, uh, I think, a, a different narrative. So that's what I'm more or less trying to balance at the crime front line. It's a wonderful um, journey with travel when we not only learn to see the world through the eyes of academia, which you clearly have as a scientist, as someone who has gone through the process of becoming an engineer and studying, you know, waste management and all the uh, the ways that we manage life, and also to learn through the eyes of being connected, being you know, walking alongside the miners, walking alongside the people who drink the water that has been contaminated, who mourn the loss of ice fields, you know. And so in, in, in what ways has your experience having grown up in Latin America not only influenced but shaped the way you see your world, the way you uh, want to help others see what you see? What I would say here is that... Um there's this idea of being an expert, right? Uh, and you can uh, often obtain this expert status through academia. And for me, I struggle with calling myself a, a sustainability professional or, or environmental planning professional, just simply because uh, most of the most important lessons that I've learned in, in my life that, that, you know, guide me in the work that I do have been taught to me by those uh, indigenous communities that are in the Altiplano of Peru, right? I'm originally from Cusco, Peru, so there's uh, a heavily influence there of, of a certain type of science that is not uh, necessarily based on, on the way we understand it in, in, in other places. And so I would say that that has had a profound effect in the way I navigate both my personal and professional life, you know, there's that distinction here in the U.S., but I would say that when you understand that uh, the peoples that lived in Cusco, in the Altiplano, and they were able to live there and cultivate food and design cities around the Pachamama and the Apus, you know, so that the water was coming down and everything was was seamless, um, there's a lot of value to that, right? Uh, their relationship with the Pachamama and, and Earth was in sync. And so I don't think we need to necessarily reinvent the wheel there and bring in different perspectives to try to alleviate these issues. I think a lot of these communities that are out there, especially in the rural areas, 
they have the answers to a lot of these problems. They are experiencing climate change. If we're going to approach them uh, with, you know, language and, and, um, and maybe a, a mindset of like, hey, we're the experts and you don't know about this, I don't think it's constructive. So I would, to kind of wrap your, the answer to, my, to your question here is, I see myself very much uh, still an apprentice and, and equal to many of these people that are out there because they know their land, they're well connected to their land, and to the extent that people that are in the Western world, how are we connected to the land? How do we relate to each other? And I think when we start analyzing our relationship to each other and the land, that's when we really can understand, quote unquote, who's the expert in all this, right? It's wonderful to hear you speak um, so connected to your heart. You know, the author Parker Palmer wrote that. He asked the question in his book, is the life that I'm living the life that wants to be lived through me? And for me, that seems like a philosophical question, but it's not because life is always calling us, you know? I grew up in a time of war in El Salvador and the sound of bombs and, you know, gunshots is very familiar, which, you know, many people think, you know, that traumatizes you. But what really traumatizes people is extreme poverty what really traumatizes people is extreme the what they call here natural disasters I, I wrote a piece that said there's nothing natural about disasters disasters disastrous events usually affect mis mostly the people who are you know uh, marginalized by poverty by economics by invisibility of their voices and so I'm happy that you bring up the connection between Pachamama and the significance of the silence around events that are so uh, defining in Latin America. For instance, the coup, in uh, the coup in Venezuela, which is still ongoing, but the coup in right. Bolivia with Evo Morales had more to do um, with the way we see the world as well. Evo Morales was the first indigenous president, and not only that, he's presidency brought to the forefront the idea that nature has rights. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your experience walking in Bolivia, how that experience informs the way you now see po you know, policy or the practice of environmental protection. I think my experience with people in Bolivia is it's somewhat of an extension of uh, being in Cusco as well, right? I mean, there are two cities that have some similarities and some differences, but ultimately they're, they're not too far away, right? And as it relates to policy, I mean, policy is often written, right? And when we're talking about written things, it's like what comes to mind for me is language when, when you ask me that question. And in here in the U.S. or in Canada, I'm sure it's who, who is the language serving? Right. Language is serving uh, people who are able to obtain, um, you know, the education or willing or are, are able to uh, work with that policy. So to me, when you're ask, asking this question, I think there's a divide, too, between those individuals that can speak English, that can write English because their mother tongues may not even be written. So that's that's kind of like the theoretical answer to to your question. I think the. The, the answer for me, as I've engaged 
policy making is um, how do we set the table really, right? And is it a table that we need to set? Maybe it's not even a table. Uh, do we use forks? Because it may not even be forks that we're using uh, to set this table. And, and obviously I'm using a lot of analogies here, but that's to say, um, how are we setting ourselves up to collaborate? Because if collaboration is looking right now like we invite some people to the table, but we're not thinking about their capacity to come to the table, we're not thinking about the childcare that the mother may need during that time, we're not thinking about the food, the transportation, uh, many other factors for them to get to even to the table, then I would argue we're we're not quite there in terms of collaboration, right? It has to be a collective approach to make sure that when we do collaborate to build pol policy, then then it has to be in a way that's meaningful to all the communities, not just some. I would say indigenous people across Aviala and across Turtle Island, which is known as North America, have you know have had centuries of fighting. You know, in Latin America, we have five hundred years of fighting colonization and fighting, not just. Um, the right to exist, you know, because I, for whether it be the Maya people, the Quechua people, the Aymara people, there, there's, there's constant invisibilization not only in the language and how we are spoken about and how um, the textbooks that tell us, you know, what's the right way through progress um, describe what development should be like. But also, I think it's whose voices matter. And for the Hopi people, my friend said, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. And I love yeah. that. At the same time, I wonder, though, if that's enough. Because, you know, we saw with the election of Barack Obama, a black president, the first black president in North America. And yet that did not make significant improvements in the lives of black people. You know, the struggle of Black Lives Matter was something that was birthed, you know, through years of struggle to just simply be visibilized in not only in the culture, in the in the way that the systems operate against you. And so we're seeing that sometimes being at the table is not enough. So the, it's how the table is arranged. It's how the table is set. In the case of Barack Obama, the table was set to benefit bankers, to benefit industry, to benefit war promoters, you know. But it didn't do a lot for people in Flint, you know. Uh, they, it didn't do a lot for black people who live in marginalized communities. In fact, I think that having a black person almost silenced a lot of the radical voices and it created a narrative, well, we have a black person, we've made it. And whereas for us in Latin America, having Eva Morales meant a deeper engagement with indigenous communities, a deeper connection to not only the struggle for life, which indigenous communities have all along said, you know, nature is not apart from us. We are part of nature. So the, the idea that nature has rights, the idea that through this one presidency, we were able to bring up language that safeguarded the rights of nature that invited a different engagement with development 
you know, in in imperfect steps, because it was not definitely a perfect system. You know, the explo- exploitation of lithium in Bolivia um, still continued, and so we have to explore those things, right? How how do we come to the table? How is that table set up? How is that table um, inviting? to a diversity of voices? Or is it simply a table where everything's been set? You don't have a choice as to what's been served on the menu. This is what it is. Take it or leave it. And you just get to say you were at the table. So how do we then connect those dots and invite new ways of imagining a world, perhaps without a table, perhaps a world where we are in a circle, perhaps a world where we have a talking stick as do many indigenous communities and we all take turns, you know, sharing our ideas, sharing our dreams of what a world could look like. What does that world look like for you? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think where, where my mind goes on this is what happens before we come together at the table, right? Because, um, for example, quinoa or tarui, one of my favorite uh, dishes from Cusco. It's it, there's a story of cultivation, and ultimately the symbolism there is the relationship we have with Earth, right? And I think there's going to be a difference in terms of how we get to that table or how we get to that kitchen in terms of where are we getting our produce to cook? How will we cook? Do our people have uh, space to grow those vegetables or fruits that we would otherwise need to cook? Uh, are there pesticides in that land? Who owns that land? Is it being jeopardized? Who has it? So that um, preparation, right, to get to cooking first is, is a long journey of uh, putting seeds on the ground and uh, and getting that plant ready to be harvested. And then also, you know, being th- thankful for, for obtaining that, that gift that um, Earth is giving us. And I think by having a conversation where we are honest with each other about how it is that we, we gear up to, to coming together to, to cook and, and share space, I think can illuminate us in, in ways in which we can tackle larger problems. And now, obviously, this is all an analogy in terms of going to cook, but this could also be taken to, you know, um, how we engage with youth, right? And youth are seeds for many reasons. And, and so by watering the seeds, you, you got to be able to give them support when they need to, right, for their education and how they grow up, who they relate to, who they have mentors as, do they see themselves in positions that they want to be in, uh, all the all these analogies, I think, could go a long way. But I would say, you know, let's look at what happens before we even come to a table or cook together, because that is the place I think where we could be more connected about how it is that we're uh, gearing up to sharing space and sharing a meal. And ultimately, uh, it is through that connection we can build relationships. And relationships, I think, is going to be key to get us out of the uncertainty of things like media controlling the narrative, things like, you know, uh, having people be pinned against each other. Uh, if we would just work on relationships and trying to find common ground and being careful about the language we use there, right, I think can go a very long way. Mm-hmm. 
I love that you point out the relational aspect of all our struggles, you know, whether it be a struggle to end capitalism because it's destroying the world, whether it be a struggle to end, you know, the consumption of fossil fuels, whether it be a way to transform the way we engage with education or the way that we engage with creativity, you know, in, in the world there are so many um, aspects that we have forsaken, you know, in the pursuit of wealth, right, in the pursuit of living better. And my friend um, Marcelo Saberda, who is an Aymara elder, says, you know, it's not about living better, it's about living well. And how do we become good ancestors? How do we um, apprentice to become good elders for others who are, you know, for the children who are following our steps, for the and sometimes we need to father and parent our own parents because they learn through coercion many uh, mm -hmm. ways of violence, right? And so it, it's both, I think, unlearning and relearning and sometimes completely letting go of ways of seeing that colonizes us, you know, into practices that are against life. You know, the extractivist way of life is not sustainable. We can uh, plunder the earth forever and expect that we'll have clean air and good food to eat. It's, it's, it's not going to be sustainable. So I love that you bring um, this aspect of interconnection and also interdependence into the discussion of what it means to be sustainable, what it means to be socially responsible, socially engaged, and to me, responsibility is just the ability to respond, the ability to know the context, the moment you're in, and to bring what you have, you know, to bring to the table what you have and say, I can offer this. And when we are in that state of being of service and in service of the community and others come with a similar heart, amazing things happen. It's you know, suddenly you Absolutely. have, you have, you know, food banks and you create shelters for, you know, children who are orphaned by war and you create hospitals and you create things that seem to come out of nowhere and out of nothing. And I think it's that dream that keeps most of us who have been orphaned in some way, you know, from those utopias of, you know, that our parents could have dreamed of. And now we feel like even the air we breathe is, you know, uh, contaminated so what keeps you energized what keeps you excited that not only we are at the right moment but we're also the people we've been waiting for to create the change we'd like to see i think there's two pieces to 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 that i i would like to take just a second to what you're saying about the relationship piece because what what you what what was brought up to me when when you were saying that is um Recently, outside of Cusco, in, in the rural areas, people have been starting to put um, white flags outside their houses. And um, this is for people who don't have food during this pandemic, right? This is for people who who are at, at, at the end of it, you know? And uh, it's a sign for people to then come by and, and drop off food. And right now, there's just not enough to go around, right? And 
I, I mentioned this because there's this thing you're mentioning, it's responsibility, right? And the other word that comes to mind is Aini, which means to be in, in cooperation in Quechua, right? And there's a lot of questions to be asked about companies who want to extract, for example, quinoa out of the Cusco region to export it when there's white flags just around the corner, right? And this Aini is something that has to be ingrained into how we do business. If we're talking about capitalism and just, you know, uh, getting some money for the quinoa that uh, you harvest so that, uh, you know, someone in the Western world could now enjoy it because quinoa has become so popularized, that's one thing. And I don't think that business model is going to get us to where we need to be as a community in relationship with each other and in relationship with Earth. Integrating Aini, I think, is going to go a long way because we, we take a look at how we relate to each other and ultimately what's our responsibility with our elders and the communities there. And that really, I think, is where um, the, the relationship piece, when I think of where I get my inspiration, it's really from youth because uh, they keep on pushing, you know. And my main segment for my podcast, the Climate for Online podcast, is youth getting you to, uh, at the very least, listen to what I have to say. I know uh, there's youth across the U.S. that I, I engage with who just value listening to the experiences that I had going into the sustainability profession or going abroad or this or that, right? And it's really giving them that opportunity to to have a relationship with me or having them connect with other people that gives me hope because at the end of the day, uh, especially right now, we're flooded with negative energy, right? Especially through social media, through other forms of media. I think this podcast does some justice in, in changing that narrative, right? The, the podcast that you have with Latin Waves. And I would say that I've received messages from youth the past month or two where they're like, hey, you know, how are you... Um, this happened in my life and these negative things happens. But by the way, like, you know, I appreciated some of your guidance or, or some of the things we had spoken about earlier, because now I'm able to put myself in this better position. And it's like, when you receive that message, it gives you an opportunity to then pivot into something positive, right? When you realize that there's white flags in, outside of my hometown and I had a well-cooked breakfast meal this morning need i need more motivation to move forward and uh, have this conversation with you right now have this conversation with another brother or sister and the other side of the united states or the world who is struggling with these issues need i need more motivation to build relationships and build resiliency for a new economy for a new world so yeah i would say my role clarity comes from that <laughs> and and inspiration and, and hope comes from people who are at the front line and they're still making it work. So what, what do I have to complain about? You know, like, let's do this. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm. I love your vision that not only can we create a world where youth feel empowered and engaged and invited to co-create the vision for the future that they would like to live in. So how can people access your work? How, how do people connect with you? Yeah, I would say check out uh, the website, climateforonline.com. 
the other best way to reach me is through LinkedIn. If you have one, you know, yeah, I, w- I would say that in, in those two places, you can find links where you can co- contact me. Uh, overall, I would say that, you know, uh, my, the idea here for me is to build community and, and build a, a learning community. So uh, it, it is through those mediums that I'm really going to try to foster a community of, of individuals that uh, have difficult conversations as well as just learn from each other. So I look forward to hearing you from there. Thank you so much. My guest is Alfredo Gonzalez Valenzuela. He is the uh, creator of Climate Frontlines. Thank you again for being with us. Un placer. Nos vemos. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.